You're listening to an episode of a Wondery Plus exclusive series. To continue listening, join Wondery Plus and enjoy ad-free listening to over 40,000 episodes, early access to your favorite podcasts, and more. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. A listener note. This episode contains mature content and discussions of violence. From Wondery, I'm Stephen Johnson, and this is American Innovations. On September 11th, 1695, two ships confronted each other in the middle of the Indian Ocean. One, an enormous treasure ship owned by the Grand Mughal of India. The other, a much smaller British pirate ship called the Fancy. As the two ships first approached each other, it seemed as though the pirates would be easily overpowered. But then, two unlikely events happened in quick succession. A malfunctioning cannon on the treasure ship exploded, killing and maiming dozens of the Indians and setting fire to the deck. And then, A moment later, the Fancy fired off a wild shot that split the main mast in two, effectively disabling the Indian ship in the water. The British pirates made off with as much as $100 million in loot that day, making it one of the most lucrative heists in the history of crime. But their exploits nearly got the British-owned East India Company kicked out of the subcontinent. To keep doing business there, the company had to launch a global manhunt for the pirate's captain, Henry Avery and drag his motley crew to trial. This remarkable chapter of pirate history is the subject of my new book, Enemy of All Mankind, a true story of piracy, power, and history's first global manhunt. It's the story of how one sea heist helped give birth to our modern world, one where the big winners are multinational businesses rather than dynasties, where democracies follow the same playbook as pirates, and celebrity news has become our lingua franca. We're going to be discussing this story in today's episode, but since I can't interview myself, I've invited Rufus Griscom, the host of Wondery's Next Big Idea, to fill in for me. We'll dive deep into the surprising legacy and enduring mystery of Captain Henry Avery and the crime that echoed around the world. That's ahead. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. 
The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Well, Stephen Johnson, welcome to American Innovations. You know, I'm so honored to be here. I've heard such great things about this show, and it's, <laughs> it's really hard to get on it as a guest. First of all, this is a gripping page-turner of a book. I read it over the weekend in a couple sittings while shirking my parenting duties. Oh, I'm sorry uh, to hear that. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. And also that the book does explore numerous innovations, wonderful digressions on technological innovations, but really, I think, at core about the evolution of institutions that were at their infancy at the end of the 17th century. What were some of the innovations that were taking root at this time? Well, on a macro level, this book is about the very beginnings of a publicly traded mm -hmm. multinational corporation. This was a genuinely new innovation in the 1600s. The primary way that people started to make money for the first time was through those shares rising in value, not through the actual direct profits of the company itself. And this was a completely new idea at the time. So it was a genuinely yep. new way of accumulating wealth. And there's this theme that emerges quickly here, the old power of the autocratic Mughal dynasty and the new power of this multinational corporation, both of them titans in their own right. One of my favorite earlier chapters in the book is called Two Kinds of Treasure. One kind of treasure is this new form that we've just talked about, the publicly traded company and the public shares. That's a new way of accumulating treasure. There's this old model that's been around forever, basically, which is to have an autocratic dynasty, to be a king or a monarch or an emperor and tax your citizens and take all that wealth and build palaces and hand it down to your descendants, right? Most of the wealthiest people in the world at that point in 1693 were folks who had come out of that tradition, dynastic wealth, right? One of those people, arguably the most wealthy person in the world at this point, was the kind of the head of the Mughal dynasty, the last of the Grand Mughals in India, Aurangzeb. And in a way, the, the events of this book are kind of like this clash between these two immense institutions, right? This old dynasty and this new corporation that has the future on its side. And then in the middle between them, changing the whole balance of power between them, is a pirate on a ship with 150 other men. Extraordinary. Yeah, the dynastic wealth worked pretty well for a long time. Yeah. But you point out that today, when you look at the Forbes 100 list, you might have somebody in the, in the Saudi royal family there. But by and large, this was this sort of inflection point where this new structure for wealth creation was emerging. There's a funny scene where the first representative of the East India Company shows up at, at an earlier point in 1610 or something like that, and he meets the Grand Mughal at that point. And this Englishman, is, he's had this terrible journey. He's been arrested, and he's like in these tattered clothes, and he enters the incredibly opulent quarters of the Grand Mughal. But if you looked at it right at that point, you would have said, okay, clearly, you know, all of the future is on the side of this immensely wealthy person. But actually, the, the representative from England and the East India Company that he really had the future on his side. So it turns out the shareholders in the East India Company would inadvertently play a part in creating a much bigger headache for the company, right? And set off a global firestorm. That story started in August of 1693 with a pair of brothers named James and Isaac 
Kublon. They'd invested in a, in a venture kind of that was separate from the East India Company. It was called Spanish Expedition Shipping. They had four ships and they were going to go to the Caribbean and they were going to do some salvage operations and do some trading with the Spanish. And on board the ship was a guy named Henry Avery, who is the main protagonist of Enemy of All Mankind. And basically the expedition gets hung up in uh, a port in Spain for bureaucratic reasons. They sit there languishing for months, not getting paid. And so Avery decides in a quite extraordinary sequence to lead a mutiny and take over the ship and go off and basically turn into an official pirate. And that takes place in May of 1694, and he escapes with this ship. And they they rechristen the ship the Fancy, which I love. This is a great name for for a pirate ship. Uh, And they set off to uh, make their fortune at sea. That that transition from Avery being this highly capable rising mariner to participating in a mutiny and becoming a pirate seemed to happen pretty rapidly, right? One of the things that fascinated me reading the book is learning about these kinds of incremental distinctions between privateers, yeah. pirates, and how and how one could get enticed yeah. to the pirate side of the equation. So this is one of the things that's, that's incredibly important to the story and to the story's historic kind of significance. So up until Avery's career, particularly among the British, there was this interesting kind of blurry line between being a privateer, which was legitimate, and being a pirate, which was technically you know, illegal and and frowned upon. And a privateer just meant you could do all the things that a pirate would do. You could attack other ships and just steal their gold and overpower their men. But as long as you were attacking, uh, if you were a British privateer, as long as you weren't attacking British ships, that was fine. So someone like Sir Francis Drake basically lived his whole career as a pirate, but he was able to come back to England, get knighted and, you know, buy a big fancy estate and become part of the establishment. So... It was at a point where it wasn't totally clear, you know, what was illegitimate and outside the law and what was something that could be actually practiced and you could come home with the money and keep it and not be arrested. Avery is the first person to really challenge that blurriness and and force the British to basically make the law much clearer in terms of piracy. And when we think about the factors that would motivate someone to become a pirate or to join a pirate ship, Right, which is now something we think we see through the lens of, of, of the Walt Disney, you know, renditions yeah. of, of piracy. There's this extraordinary description in the book. I think you said you'd have a hundred men living in a thousand square feet the size of a small apartment with five foot ceilings, rampant disease, insect infested food. I mean, it was really a brutal set of living conditions. Absolutely. And for the most part, the folks who you know joined the mutiny signed up willingly for it. This was a lifestyle choice that people made, which raises the question of why would anybody sign up for this? And the the answer to that is it was really one of the only ways that you could fundamentally economically change your station. We get support from Simply Safe. Feeling safe at home has never been more important, which is why I'm such a big fan of Simply Safe home security. Simply Safe has made it easy to finally get comprehensive protection for your home. There's no technician or salesperson that needs to come and disrupt your house. You don't need to pay any outrageous monthly fees or sign a two-year contract. Instead, you get the ease and simplicity of ordering online. And then, once it arrives, 
setting it up yourself in under an hour. Just like that, your home is protected 24-7 with emergency dispatch for break-ins, fire, and more. All for just 50 cents a day. And I'm not the only fan of Simply Safe. U.S. News & World Report named Simply Safe best overall home security of 2020. Right now, when you head to simplysafe.com innovations, you'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. That's simplysafe.com innovations to make sure they know that our show sent you. From Simply Safe and all of us here at American Innovations, we're wishing you safety and good health. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is crucial to the, the mythology of the pirates during this period is that there weren't any other role models of rags to riches, you know, some aspiring young entrepreneur who you know, does a startup and becomes a millionaire, that didn't exist, right? If you were rich, you were born into money at this point in time. And the pirates were the one place where there was this vision of, I'm going to seek my fortune in the world, even though I come from nothing. And so they signed up for these incredibly arduous and dangerous journeys because it was the one route they had to really change their station in life. And as you point out, there wasn't an internet. Your typical... English citizen at that time led a very quiet, contained, uneventful, unexciting life. And this was, if you wanted to expand your horizons back then, you had to quite literally expand your horizons. It was exciting. This is part of why it captured the imaginations of so many people. Yeah, they're bound up in this early media landscape in that period as well. And so you have these new kind of tabloid uh, broadsides being developed. You actually have this really hilarious convention of what were called the ballad mongers, which were people on the yeah, street who would sing the news. Basically, they would have a print copy <laughs> of the news, which was often written in verse. So they would sing out the news. But a lot of the stories were true crime stories, basically, because there wasn't a lot. There were no celebrities yeah. to gossip about. Right. Nobody. There were no movie stars and TV stars and reality TV stars and Instagram people like nobody. You just knew like the royalty and maybe like the pope and the, you know, the clergy, but you didn't know anybody else. And so criminals were crucial to the birth of this new kind of media system and pirates particularly because they had this mythology of rags to riches you know young dashing daring men who made a name for themselves and made a fortune for themselves and so a lot of these ballad mongers and other uh, media types are telling stories about piracy as well and and that's another reason why they people are incentivized to join the pirate ships well and and that and the symbiotic relationship between the press and the business of piracy is kind of fascinating. In business parlance today, we refer to it as earned media, you know, <laughs> right. free publicity. But you, you, you write in the book, by cultivating a reputation for bloodlust and mayhem, the pirates made their own jobs easier. A merchant captain who just read an account of one of his peers being force-fed part of his own anatomy would naturally be more inclined to surrender his ship at the first sight of a black flag. 
force-fed anatomy, Stephen. Could you be a little more specific? <laughs> it was. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. You know, disgust our readers here by going into details. <laughs> but there are some gruesome little bits in this, uh, in this book for sure. Um, there's actually a, a riff that is from a wonderful book called The Invisible Hook about the economics of pirate ships that I learned a lot from as well. If people are interested in this, but. I mean, in a sense, it was like a brand management kind of technique where you wanted to cultivate a reputation for being incredibly cruel, you know, in your ways, in your punishments, so that someone would surrender their treasure immediately when they saw you. Be like, oh, I read about that guy. He's awful. <laughs> like, here's my loot. Please don't, you know, cut off my whatever. So they, you know, they definitely needed that support, that earned media, as you say, from the, the nascent uh, newspapers of the age. Presumably, those stories were based on actual events. And as horrible as, as so much of the behavior was of these pirates, it's extraordinary how progressive they were in terms of how they actually managed the economics and the kind of self-governance on, on these ships, right? You want to speak a little bit to that? The pirate ship was probably one of the most progressive economic organizations on the planet at that period of time. So they would sign these things they called Articles of Agreement. And it was like a little mini constitution in a way for their pirate ship. And it both um, had a very, you know, advanced for, for its age um, uh, democratic governance system. In fact, a divided de democratic governance system predating the American system where the captain had to be elected by the crew. And there was another kind of leader called the quartermaster who had mm -hmm, separate... Mm -hmm but almost equal powers so that you have that kind of divided governance that the American founding fathers eventually developed. And you had a, basically a profit sharing plan where the ratio of pieces of gold that would be delivered to each member of the crew was established in advance. And that ratio was incredibly flat, even by the standards of the age and, and certainly by our standards today. So the captain would sometimes just get two pieces of gold for every one that a member of the crew got. Sometimes it was four um, but you compare that to the kind of high-low wage ratios of a modern American corporation, which is like 500 to 1. Yeah, um, yeah it's ex extraordinary. So that's part, that's part of the kind of the working class appeal of the pirates, which becomes crucial to the story, is that they had this popular support precisely because they were more. it was more egalitarian, in a sense, in the way that it shared wealth. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's return to the story. So after the mutiny occurs and they, and they leave this, this Spanish port, Avery convinces his fellow mutineers to go on a pretty daring raid, right? The plan was to sail around the Horn of Africa all the way to the mouth of the Red Sea, to attack Aranzab's treasure fleets returning from their annual pilgrimage to Mecca. This is a plan that would take over a year to execute, and just before they're supposed to do it, they stop off in Madagascar and realize they weren't the only ones with this idea. Yeah, when, when, by the time they actually arrive all the way, you know, almost on the other side of the world, it turns out there are about five other pirate ships at this same point. In fact, by some estimates, 50% of the world's population of pirates had arrived at this particular point in the Indian Ocean waiting for these Indian treasure ships to come down because it was such a lucrative potential heist. And that point at the mouth of the Red Sea is, is very vulnerable. In fact, today's you know, most famous pirates still practicing, the Somali pirates, do their work in the exact same waters. It's just oil money that's now coming down uh, through that area. It's not, uh, you know, Arabian gold. And that leads us to the heist itself. Spoiler alert, things don't go quite as planned. 
what happens. <laughs> yeah. I never know really how, but I think this part of it is okay to talk about, but I, it, is a, it is on some level kind of a mystery page turner, so I have to be careful about how much I reveal yeah. of these things. But, but no, it's, it is, it's an important part of the story. So basically they attack, Avery and his men attack this much bigger ship um, whose name anglicized to the Gunsway. The translation of its Indian name is um, excessive treasure or exceeding treasure, which is a pretty obvious name for your ship. <laughs> if you, <laughs> <laughs> I think if you were trying to hide from the pirates, you wouldn't call your ship excessive treasure, but whatever. Yeah, I, th- I think maybe maybe very little treasure. Would <laughs> yeah, be better, better no treasure to see here, not better. at all. Um, <laughs> and the book actually begins with this scene. There's an incredibly um, fortuitous thing from Avery's perspective that happens where a cannon blows up on the deck of the Indian ship and a cannon that accidentally explodes just as a bomb, basically. So there's a bomb goes off on the deck of the Indian ship and kills a bunch of people, sets fire to the ship. And simultaneously, Avery has his very lucky shot. One of the first cannonballs they fire hits the main mast of the Indian ship, splits it in two, basically disables the ship in the water. So even though Avery is on, oh, way overpowered, he ends up seizing the ship. And because it, they're, they're pilgrims on board, very unusually for that time in maritime history, there are women on board, these religious pilgrims. And some of Avery's men rape some of these women. Some of these women commit suicide, jumping overboard to avoid being raped. And so there's this crime on multiple levels. Avery takes off with about somewhere between 20 to $100 million in today's currency worth of treasure. And so almost immediately, you know, you realize as he's kind of sailing away from this that He's just become the world's most wanted man. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. I get the sense reading the book that you feel some empathy for Avery. I mean, that he sort of struggles with trying to do the right thing to some degree. I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how... Avery was supposed to be represented in the book. He's such a mystery in many ways. We know very little about him until 1693 and very little about him after 1696. Although in those three years, he becomes one of the most famous men in the world. So it's a kind of a unique life story. I mean, I can't really think of anybody quite like that. You know, when you spend that much time writing a book about someone who's at the center of it, you you know, you feel like you know them on some level, but he is on some fundamental level unknowable. I think we can't romanticize him too much. I mean, he we do know that he was some sort of a slave trader. We know that he picked up and sold slaves during this voyage. In fact, one of the first things that they do after they get the money the treasure from the Indian ship is that they stop over in Reunion, which is right next to Madagascar, and buy some slaves with the treasure that they've stolen from the ship, effectively money laundering. 
because the Arabian gold and silver that they have there is, you know, you can see where it came from, but an African slave, no one would know that that original kind of value came from this crime. Um, so he was a pretty unsavory fellow on a lot of levels. Um, his relationship to the sexual violence on board the ship, Avery apparently did not join the ship. And there is this legend that developed, which is another whole thread in the book, that he encountered a granddaughter of uh, Aurangzeb, you know, a member of the royal family, and that they, this is the preposterous part of it, they fell in love and that they were married actually by a Muslim cleric in a Muslim ceremony and that Avery disappeared to a pirate utopia on Madagascar and lived happily ever after with his Indian princess. If you were a British person in 1700, that was the story you knew of Henry Avery was that he had had this wonderful, romantic, multicultural, <laughs> multi-religious <laughs> wedding um, as a as a pirate who'd been born into nothing. Um, almost certainly that did not happen. But there is some very tantalizing evidence that there was some member of the royal family on board the ship who seems to have disappeared with Avery and his men. And what happened to her is something I speculate on the book, but um, it's a part of the mystery around this story. When this book is turned into a movie, and I'm convinced, <laughs> I'm convinced that it will, because it's just it, it's so cinematic, right? I think in the in the movie version, this moment where the actual raid occurs, right? You describe so beautifully in, in different in different places in the book, uh, and I can see this being sort of slow down in slow motion in the, in the in the movie version where you have this you have this canon that because of perhaps some imp imperfections in the original manufacturing turns into a bomb and detonates on the ship you have a, a kind of flukishly accurate shot that fells the main mask covering the whole deck with sails and yeah. and, and 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 ropes um and and you and you also even all i mean, I mean it's this kind of like moment of a kind of fulcrum in history of this moment where this this sequence of things had to all come together perfectly to cause what would come next but but once it once it did occur there was no stopping it you want to speak a little to that moment yeah well that you know it's funny i'll just say something about it more as an author which is that was the idea i had for this book before i'd ever heard of henry avery <laughs> and that i had this idea of writing a book that would begin with a very you know, second by second description of something. And then you would start with that and then you would backtrack, in some cases, hundreds of years <laughs> to tell the story of all the forces that led up to that moment. And then you would kind of find out what the consequences were potentially hundreds of years later. And I had that structure in my head for for years and years and years as an interesting way of organizing a, a nonfiction narrative. But, uh, you know, you can't just... <laughs> <laughs> you don't you can't just write a book with a structure like you need an actual series of events. And so it wasn't until I found this story that I finally realized it. And, and in some ways you can say if they, you know, if they hadn't overpowered the ship, hadn't pulled off this heist, hadn't, you know, attacked the women, none of the subsequent events would have happened, obviously. And they probably wouldn't have been able to overpower the ship if the cannon hadn't exploded. And if that cannonball had just veered, you know, another couple of inches to the left. And so it is a kind of butterfly effect moment in history where change just a couple of little variables, uh, you know, move one thing, you know, an inch this way or slightly fix a little impurity in the canon. 
um, and the whole thing plays out differently, and the and the, the chain of events going for decades after this plays out differently. So that was the you know as a historian that part of it is it was really fun to get to describe. And that I think is is characteristic of your unique approach to historical narratives. And this is really your second historical narrative. You have an interest in the historical story. And as I think of it, almost an interest in kind of like the physics of what causes certain moments to unfurl the way they do. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah. The technique that I use in this book is is one that I first kind of wrote in, in my book, The Ghost Map, which was about a cholera epidemic in London. So it's kind of timely again, sadly. You know, it, it has always struck me when I read more traditional historical accounts that there's sometimes wonderful attention to the detail of characters' lives and social movements and things like that that are happening in events. But I'm always asking in my own mind as I read those books, why did things happen, right? I mean, the what of history is is very interesting and compelling. And I, I'm sure there are lots of people who just would like to know the events. But to me, the question is like, why did this thing happen versus this other thing? And when you start to ask that question, you have to talk about, well, this particular sequence happened in part because somebody had invented a publicly traded company for the first time. And this event happened as well because piracy had emerged as a viable profession for some people based on these new articles of agreement that had been invented a couple of you know decades before by other pirates and you know and so on and so on and so i find it really interesting to try and both tell a story that involves genuine action and mystery and hopefully some sense of page turning but also explaining that broader set of forces at the same time and you know it's funny there was a review <laughs> there's a review of enemy that just came out in the Sunday Times in in England and they were talking about this approach and they were saying that it was similar to ghost map in that way and speaking of ghost map the, the reviewer said um, many loved it some found it infuriating. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought, I'm going to put that on my tombstone. That is, that's, that's you right there. And I think, you know, maybe for some people there's, there is a sense of like this digression about the history of the Mughal empire is getting in the way of the pirate story that I thought I was reading. But I think for the most part, there, there are plenty of books that are there are enough. If you want just straight history, the world, the shelves are filled with them. You know, I try and do something a little bit different. Well, it, it's, I, I suspect you, Stephen, of hoodwinking us into learning things that we never intended to learn, right? Because <laughs> right? it actually, it, it, it's, no, it, it's very effective. And I don't, know, I don't know what you're paying these reviewers at the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, but the praise for this book has been lavish. And the New York Times wrote, Johnson is less interested in the story of Henry Avery than in its implications and in its part in a wider meta-narrative. As a result, we're treated to often fascinating digressions on the origins of terrorism, celebrity in the tabloid media, the tricky physics of cannon manufacture, and the miserable living conditions of the average 17th century seaman. So this, this really gets to precisely what we're talking about. And I, I don't know that it's fair to say you're less interested in the story, but perhaps equally interested in, in these other variables. Well, actually, you know, in writing the book, the first draft of it was very heavy with the digressions in the opening chapters. And my editor, Courtney Young, she did a really wonderful job going through and figuring out how to tighten it, basically so that we're never too far from the story mm -hmm. of Avery, even if we go off on these digressions. Well, that is a perfect nudge, Stephen, to continue on with the story. So what happens next? Well, two big things, and then probably that's where we should leave it in terms of the mystery of the book, since we don't want to give too much of it away. But the first is Aurangzeb gets word that this heist has happened and that his women have been 
uh, raped, and he threatens to eject the East India Company from India itself. He uh, arrests, uh, puts under basically house arrest the East India Company representatives at, in Bombay and at um, Surat, their two big port towns at that period, and actually threatens to have them executed, but also threatens to, to kick the East India Company out of India for good. And that would have changed everything, right? Because the, the British Empire um, that eventually develops in India in the next century was a direct offshoot of the East India Company, right? They were basically, uh, you know, it was a corporation that morphed into an uh, occupying army on some level. And if the East India Company had lost its monopoly on trade, uh, the whole history of the British Empire in India would have would have played out differently. So back in London, they realize that they need to do something about this. And basically, it forces the British government for the first time to renounce piracy for good and to get rid of this kind of blurred line between pirates and privateers. And they initiate this global manhunt for Henry Avery, put a bounty on his head and announce anybody who turns him in, including other pirates, uh, will get a significant fortune. And they start searching the world for this pirate. And it's really the first global manhunt in history. It's It's Bin Laden, you know, 300 years uh, before Bin Laden himself. And uh, it, it's an interesting question, like in a world without the internet, without no one was scheduling a Zoom call to, to coordinate the manhunt, you know, could you find this person? So it sets up this chase and that eventually leads to a trial in London uh, which is the kind of centerpiece of the end of the book. But to learn more about that, I think our listeners will have to just read the book. Yes, yes, well played. But I think we can maybe speak to the, the, the East India Company goes on to become this extraordinary juggernaut. And so quite possibly the expansion of the British Empire to include India would not have occurred were it not for the actions of John Avery. There are a lot of arguments for why the British Empire formed in India the way that it did in the officially in the middle of the 1700s. Uh, but this is one of these interesting alternate timeline theories about history where if Aurangzeb had ejected the East India Company, what would have probably happened is that trade would have continued with India, but it would have been broken up into lots of separate enterprises, not one single dominant corporation that was doing all the business. And with it broken up into all these other different interactions and with the Dutch in there and the Portuguese in there, England wouldn't have had the kind of pronounced foothold that it did. And a number of the events that happened kind of at the end of the book end up giving them, in a sense, in a weird way, consolidating more British power in India in response mm-hmm. to the Avery attacks. And so if it had played out differently, if the English had not renounced piracy, if they had not tried to um, stage this trial that they end up staging in London, it's possible that there would be an alternate world where the British Empire in India never happened. One thing that struck me as kind of remarkable reading about the East India Company is the way in which we have today these transnational companies that arguably are often more powerful than, than nations and that play an increasingly prominent role in the historical process. Does that ring true for you? Yeah, and I think that's one way to read the book is if you look at the world around us today with things like multinational corporations and just a generally a globally connected society. And look, hey, I mean, what is COVID-19 if not uh, you know, an artifact of a world that is incredibly interconnected um, where someone gets sick in China and then someone gets sick in Milan and someone gets sick in New York and it's, you know, because we're so connected. 
So I think, you know, one of the things that I found fascinating in, in writing the book is that in a sense, you, you're seeing that that reality come into being um, for the first time in this period, in, in, in the 1600s. And, you know, it's this era of an interconnected kind of globe is really formalizing. And, and the idea that corporations are going to be a central organizing force and that media, global media, uh, is going to be a central organizing force those things were not inevitable, right? They were not, if you'd asked a resident of 1600, like, you know, is a publicly traded company going to be the future? They would have said, what is a publicly traded company, right? Um, and so the idea that all of these things that we now take for granted that shape our lives for better or for worse um, had these interesting origin points um, and they were shaped by people working at their kind of edges, like the pirates and Henry Avery, Um I think it's to me it's just a very interesting exploration of our our past to dig into as a as a researcher as a historian as a writer. I can't get over the idea that these pirate ships were floating experiments in self-governance with separation of powers uh effectively health insurance 100 years before the American and French revolutions. Do you think there's any connection there in which they were sort of floating bits of pollen that eventually landed on land, or is that a stretch? Well, they were a very important part of the general public's kind of radical utopian imagination at that point, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That for the first time, people began to think that it was possible to live a life where you weren't just enslaved effectively to the feudal lords, but you could make a name for yourself and you could be part of a collective that would share money. And, you know, so that's one of the reasons why they were so popular in the press. And in fact, it ends up being crucial to the story in the trial because it's a jury trial and the jury actually feels pretty sympathetic towards the pirates because they're kind of working class heroes. And so uh, that sensibility that way of thinking about the world and thinking about what was possible and the way that the world could be organized economically was partially first imagined by people reading and celebrating the lives of the pirates. And then, you know, as the pirates became outlaws and basically came out of favor, that radical utopian kind of sensibility was passed on to other forms, other institutions, other groups. But the pirates are a core part of that coming into the world. And that's, you know, maybe in some ways the most important innovation of all here, which is that 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 idea of a more just society, that idea of a society where wealth is shared more equitably is a, a crucial early idea that the pirates first kind of thrust into the world. Extraordinary. Uh, well, Stephen, congratulations on the publication of this riveting book of yours. And thank you for taking time out of your busy, quarantined life to be a guest on your own podcast. <laughs> it was such an honor to be here. Uh, <laughs> and thank you for taking over my chair uh, and playing this role as interviewer. Don't get too comfortable. I'm going to be back in that seat next week. It's a very comfortable chair, Stephen. I think it's a Barca lounger. I'm, uh, I'm reclining <laughs> over here. I think I might get comfortable. Wonderful chatting with you, Stephen. Thanks again, Rufus. From Wondery, this is American Innovations. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And thanks again to Rufus Griscom from the Next Big Idea podcast for hosting this episode. If you like our series, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and every major listening app, as well as at Wondery.com. If you'd like to hear our show ad-free and other great Wondery shows, you can subscribe to Wondery Plus. Go to Wondery.com slash plus. That's P-L-U-S. 
American Innovations is hosted by me, Stephen Johnson. For more information on my books, including Enemy of All Mankind, you can visit my website, www.stephenberlinjohnson.com. This episode was produced by Austin Cross, and the show is produced by Natalie Shisha. Executive produced by Marshall Louis and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like sure. to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This mother Lied. Like a liar. Like a liar. And if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal, or you love to hop in the Wayback Machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes, you should tune in to our podcast, Morbid. Follow Morbid on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to episodes early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.